Now, here's what happens most of the time. person gets heart failure for whatever reason. Maybe they get atrial fibrillation. Maybe they were borderline and then they get anemia. Maybe they've just had one MI too many. But for whatever reason, their heart isn't pumping enough blood to meet the body's demand for oxygen. So the body is going to compensate by increasing contractility, heart rate, fluid levels. And for a while, that works. So as, as it goes on and on, though, eventually it's going to stop working. It's not going to, you know, the patient's going to become symptomatic and they're going to start to become short of breath. But it only happens when they really exert themselves, you know, like walk up six flights of stairs. So they don't really notice it. So they keep going about their business. And then it starts to get worse, and now it only takes three flights of stairs to get short of breath. And then only one flight of stairs. And then, instead of being able to walk around the campus, they can only walk around the block. And then eventually they can only walk out to check their mail. And then eventually they can't even get out of their chair. And then eventually they're short of breath at rest. And so one of the ways we can classify heart failure is by the amount of shortness of breath. And guess who came up with this scheme? No. The New York Heart Association. Yep, so Kim, you can be proud. So the NYHA, New York Heart Association, uh, heart failure classification is based on shortness of breath. If a person has heart failure but no shortness of breath, they are class one. If they get short of breath with, with uh, large amounts of exertion, they are type two. If they get short of breath with moderate or light um, exertion, they are type three. And if they are short of breath at rest, they are type four. Nope. And it's self-reported. So you say, well, how much activity do you do before you get short of breath? So it's subjective. Now, in, in decompensation, what will happen is a normal person, as we increase their, their fiber length, and how do we increase fiber length in the heart? How do we stretch the heart? We fill it up with more fluid. In a normal person, you get this nice big curve. See? So no one really ever gets up to the very top of the curve where you start coming back down the other side because your heart's met its demands way down here. But in heart failure, what happens is this curve flattens out. So the body should be way up here, but it's way down here. So what does it do? holds on to a little more water. And that pushes you up a little more. It's still not enough, so what do you do? More water. And that's still not enough, so now you... More water, but now what happens? Now the force of contraction begins going down. Somewhere around here is what we call compensation. So what's one of the best ways that we can monitor a patient's heart failure status and prevent them from decompensating? Daily weights. If a patient starts gaining a kilogram in a day for two or days or more in a row, guess what? 
chances are they're beginning to decompensate and should go see their physician immediately and maybe, just maybe, they won't have to go to the hospital. But if they say, ah, you know, it's, it's nothing. I just had a big meal yesterday. Then what can happen to them? They, they keep going for another couple more days and then they crash and end up in the hospital. So here are some heart failure manifestations. High blood pressure. What causes the high blood pressure? Increased fluid and vasoconstriction. Tachycardia. Why tachycardia? Because their heart's trying to catch up to the body's demand. S3 sound. What is an S3 sound? A gallop. And what causes it? Way back to health assessment. It's a, it's a sound in the heart. It's a gallop. No, it's an extra sound. So n the normal heart sound is S1, S2, S1, S2. Bum, 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 bum. And S3 is bum, 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 bum. So what, what causes it, though? Flu fluid overload. Which brings us to some more signs of fluid overload. Peripheral edema especially in the feces. Pulmonary edema. Give me some signs of pulmonary edema. Pink frothy sputum, but that's a late sign, so give me an early sign. Crackles. Where are the crackles are going to be? Throughout the lungs, only later. Mostly at the bases. And why at the bases? Because gravity pulls it there. So, do patients get tired of taking deep breaths as you ask them, take a breath, take a breath, take a breath? So what happens is they get to the bottom. The breaths might not be a big, so you might not hear those crackles. So on elderly people or people who are at risk for heart failure, you should really start at the bottom so you get a good respiratory effort and then work your way up rather than starting at the top and going down. Well, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Dyspnea. Patients may be short of breath. Dyspnea on exertion. We talked about the New York heart failure classification. Activity intolerance. What's activity intolerance? Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a nursing diagnosis. Yeah. So. Sometimes you'll ask a patient, do you get short of breath when you exercise or you exert yourself? What do they say? No. no. Why not? Because they don't exert themselves anymore. Now, here's an important concept with this shortness of breath. Research has shown that a lot of the shortness of breath has less to do with their heart failure itself and more to do with disuse. How many of you have climbed six flights of stairs lately? Okay, I think we're going to do a little exercise today in lab. We're going, to, we're going to go over here to the stairwell in the parking garage, and we're going to walk upstairs, not, not fast, just normal, and we're going to see which of you was huffing and puffing at the top. Yeah, but that's flat. We're going up. So many of you would be kind of huffing and puffing at the end of six flights of stairs. And it's not that you have heart failure. 
It's that your muscles and your heart just aren't trained. One of, one of the things we want to do with our patients is we want to get them into cardiac rehab because the heart muscle and your lungs and your body's muscles can become very efficient if you just use them and that can make heart failure not as bad because your muscles are just better at extracting the oxygen they get. Now, patients may be nervous and irritable. Why would that be? Okay, it's not so much a function of the brain and oxygen. It's more of a function of... Boo! Yeah, I didn't do it so loud this time. Epinephrine. So the, the term that Arlo likes me to use is hopped up. They're hopped up on adrenaline, on epinephrine. So that can make them nervous and irritable. And then finally, we have weight gain. And what's the best way to monitor our patients? Daily weights. Okay, New York Heart Failure Classification. There you have it in writing. Please note that diseases that affect oxygenation, such as COPD, asthma, respiratory failure, anemia, can also exacerbate heart failure symptoms. All right, the treatment of heart failure. Big five. You must memorize the big five. Yeah, you pretty much, you, you should be able to figure it out by now. The first one is ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Why is a patient going to be on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB? Okay, so on the one hand, by blocking aldosterone, by preventing it from being released, we are going to help prevent cardiac remodeling. Now, what's the body's normal response to lowered cardiac output? Renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. So if we block the angiotensin, not only do we block the aldosterone release, but we also block the vasoconstriction. So if we vasodilate, does that make it easier for the heart to pump? Yes. Next one is aldactone. Why aldactone? Blocks the effects of aldosterone, which prevents cardiac remodeling. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Actually, I'm going to change the, uh, the um, order of these next ones. I'm going to put a beta blocker next. Why a beta blocker? What is, what's the body's normal response? The normal response to lowered cardiac heart failure, lowered heart output is epinephrine and norepinephrine. What does beta blocker do? It blocks the effects on the heart of epinephrine and norepinephrine. The other thing that will happen is what do we say that happens to a heart in heart failure? 
as it becomes hypertrophied, it becomes more at risk for or more susceptible to ischemia. And what does beta blockers do in terms of ischemia? It actually does nothing for the ischemia itself, but it prevents the heart cells from overworking. So it lowers myocardial demand. Now, if you remember way, way back when we first did beta blockers, what's one of the side effects or possible adverse effects of beta blockers? What can they cause? Something we're talking about right this moment. They can cause heart failure. Why would you give a drug that can cause heart failure to treat heart failure? That doesn't make any sense. This is what we call a paradoxical benefit. Ooh. Paradox. So, something that should make the patient worse will actually make them better. But guess what? It doesn't happen overnight. When you first put the patient on the beta blocker, their heart failure may get worse and they may feel more short of breath. But after a month or two, their body adjusts to it and now they actually get better. So you might have to warn your patient, this may make you feel worse for a little while. But after a month or two, you're going to start feeling better. And it's going to prevent your heart from working too hard. Because in heart failure your body tells it to work too hard. Next one, digoxin. How does digoxin work? I'm not at the molecular level now, but just at the macro level. What does it do? It makes it pump harder, but it also makes it pump slower. And then finally, we have Lasix. What does Lasix do? Decreases fluid overload. So you do need to understand how each one of these five drug classes impacts heart failure, why it's given, and what the appropriate effect should be. Now, in addition to these big five, there are some other drugs that we may give to patients in heart failure. We may give them inotropics. What are inotropics? Drugs that increase contractility. Other than digoxin, the only inotropics that we would really give the patient require them to be basically in an ICU. Things like dopamine, uh, norepinephrine, or levofed, Yes, leave them dead. <laughs> and uh, uh, phenylephrine, you can actually, instead of squirting it up your nose, you can actually give it to them IV and it will increase their heart contractility. Um, BNP, you can give artificial BNP, and that's called neseratide, is the drug name. Um, you can give artificial BNP to treat heart failure. What will that cause? It'll cause fluid loss. And the serotide is N-A-S-E-R-I-T-I-D-E. -E. You can also give isosorbide dinitrate 
plus hydralazine, and both of these two drugs are arterial vasodilators, which helps blood to get pumped through the body more easily. What? Well, you already, don't you have it in your slides? Why don't you have the slides? Ah. All right. So let's talk about some of them other drugs real quick, like. So the sympathomimetics, also known as inotropics, dopamine, dibutamine, norepinephrine. BNP is our newest weapon in the fight against heart failure. So it's used to assess by checking the levels. You can see if the patient's in heart failure. And we also use it to treat through the drug neceratide, which is just artificial BNP. It's IV only, and it lowers catecholamine release in addition to causing diuresis. It also causes vasodilation. Gosh, it does everything. It is an ICU-only drug. So are all of these three, dopamine, dobutamine, and norepinephrine. Which brings us to our next point, which is not on here. Um, if a patient decompensates and ends up in the hospital, what is the major thing that we are going to try and do for them in the hospital on a regular medical surgical floor? Reduce their fluids. And how are we going to do that? Lasix. And how are we going to give that Lasix? PO or IV? IV. How long will it take before they start peeing? About five minutes. If we gave it to them PO, how long would it take? About two hours. So we are not going to wait. We are going to have them do it now. They usually start it in the, um, in the emergency room, and then they'll be admitted to continue it. Now, if you're lucky, what are they going to have? Foley. Because they're going to be peeing a lot. Um, some of these people have gained 5, 10 kilograms. Kilograms. So it's like 10 to 20 pounds. So you're going to pee them out over the course of a day or two. Five liters. That's a lot of fluid. So it's, it's like a week to two weeks. All right, now, if that person is so sick that a regular hospital floor isn't enough and they have to go to the ICU, then what is we going to do for them? BNP and inotropic support is what they call it. So in the ICU, inotropic support and neceratide or BNP are the two things that we would do for them that we can't do on a regular hospital floor. And you better darn well know that. So that's like very serious. Right. Last resort kind of thing? Not a last resort, but a medium resort. Okay. So why would they do it with BNP on the regular floor? Because it's just too dangerous. Patient, these, the patients on BNP and these inotropics need constant monitoring. And on a regular hospital floor, even a tele floor, got five or six other patients. Well, five or six patients. In an ICU, you have one, maybe two patients tops. 
So it's just a matter of how much observation and monitoring they need. And you just can't provide it on a regular hospital floor. Don't worry about that. Just know that if you have a patient who's been admitted to an ICU for heart failure, the drugs are going to be given are either inotropics or nasiratide or both, as opposed to a regular hospital floor where the drug they would be given is Lasix. They'll still probably be on Lasix, yeah. Okay, um, managing heart failure patients. Now, if they're class one, what kind of symptoms do they have? None. So, what we're going to do is we're going to give them lifestyle changes. What would those lifestyle changes be? Exercise, but we don't call it exercise at that point. We call it cardiac rehab. So, the major difference between exercise and cardiac rehab, what is it? <laughs> Monitoring the patient. So, we hook them up to telemetry, measure their heartbeat and their ECG and all that as they exercise to make sure they don't die by accident. ACE inhibitors and stop alcohol. Alcohol damages the heart. Yep. Now, when they start to get short of breath with moderate or moderate to heavy activity, we may add a beta blocker. Um, especially, and if they've had a low ejection fraction or an MI, you know, they'll probably already be on a beta blocker by that point anyway. Um, class three. This is where they're getting short of breath with light exertion. Begin adding the diuretic, the aldactone, and the digoxin, and avoid antidysrhythmics because that can make it worse. Also avoid NSAIDs because NSAIDs can um, impair renal impairment, impair renal, impair the kidneys, which can make the heart failure worse. And also avoid calcium channel blockers because calcium channel blockers can cause heart failure. And again, make sure the patient is on a cardiac rehab program. And then class four, hospitalization. And what we'd already talked about in the last couple slides. Final considerations, blood pressure changes. What do we say a patient will typically, their blood pressure will typically look like when they're in heart failure? Will it be high, low, or normal? High, why is it high? Epinephrine, norepinephrine, and renin-angiotensin aldosterone plus fluid overload. The four of those things together equal high blood pressure. So let's imagine for a moment that Daphne has heart failure. She gets admitted, and Arla takes her blood pressure, and her blood pressure is 148 over 98. That's not terrible, but it's high. Now... Arla sends her from the, from the ER to the telly floor, and Nicole gets her. And the first thing Nicole does is take her blood pressure again. And her blood pressure now is 118 over 78. Is that normal? Yeah, that's normal. 118 over, 70, over 78 is normal. But is that good for Daphne? No, why not? 
it's a sign that her heart is going and if Nicole doesn't realize that and goes, oh great, your blood pressure is normal now. The next time she comes back in may be to call a code. So if you have a patient who's been high blood pressure, high blood pressure, high blood pressure, and then all of a sudden it's normal, and you weren't doing anything to cause that, or not enough to cause that big of a drop, you need to think, this patient is crashing, I need to call the doctor immediately. It's like, yeah, they were compensating, and now they're uncompensating. Yes, but in heart failure, it's almost always going to stay up high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's okay. Up and down, up and down is kind of expected. But when you've got someone who's who's you know fairly consistently high, and now all of a sudden they're low, that's bad. Right. Yeah. I mean, now in terms of medications, which of these medications lower blood pressure? All of them. Yeah. Now, the digoxin may slightly raise blood pressure if it can increase enough contractility, but it's also slowing heart rate. So the net effect is probably still lower blood pressure. So almost all of the drugs that we use will lower blood pressure. But if the patient's been normal, or I mean, if the patient's been consistently high, and now all of a sudden they're down normal, you've got to think of that as a potential problem. And then the last thing is patient education. What do we want to educate our patients about when they have heart failure? What is the number one thing we need to educate our patients about in heart failure? Weight. Daily weight. Because that's how they're going to know whether they need to call their doctor and schedule an appointment or not. And maybe avoid the hospital. How long should they wait? Like, they start saying they can I would say... I'm sure there's a guideline somewhere, but I'm going to tell you if they've got two yeah. 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 Right. Two pound, more than two pounds a day, two days in a row. They need to call their doctor. All right. Um, what else do they need to be educated about? Exercise. Exercise can alleviate a lot of the shortness of breath symptoms of heart failure. It can also help prevent the patient from going into worse heart failure. What about their drugs? Take those drugs the way the doctor ordered them. Now, heart failure is um, a very high-risk disease. Patients who have it die pretty quickly. You know, and the, one, the major thing that helps prevent their death is those drugs. So they need to be educated that they really need to take their drugs. They need to monitor their weight and work with the healthcare system, not against it. All right, we are done with cardiovascular. Can you believe it? So we're going to move on to GI right now. I have a minute. Okay, the, the GI notes are not up yet. Um, I will 
Yeah, if you printed out the old ones, those will work. Um, they're just not in uh, PowerPoint form. So, no, I will put them up tonight, and you can print them out if you want to. The what? Yeah, we're not doing those. <laughs>